It's Liz Winstead, host of Feminist Buzzkills, and this week is a very special episode. Earlier in the week, we did an incredible panel breaking down the possible outcomes of this very scary ruling that's about to come out of Texas on whether or not medication abortion is going to be accessible in the way we know it now. The media has just been derelict in reporting on this, and it's one of the most important stories around abortion access since the fall of Roe v. Wade. So we wanted to give you all the information you could to arm you with the facts around medication abortion, what the ruling will mean for you, what it will mean for access to abortion, and most importantly, what you can do to fight back. The panel was part of our Operation Save Abortion series, and It's an incredible series. Totally go check it out, operationsaveabortion.com, where you can immerse yourself into all the ways you can get involved in abortion activism. And then you can hit up our activist calendar and make some changes for yourself. Do it with your friends, do it alone, but it's an incredible resource that we provide to keep you as informed, up to date, and also with actions you can take to do the best you can to help in this fight to protect abortion access. So without further ado, let's turn it over to this incredible panel and its incredible host from the Boom Lawyered podcast and the senior vice president of Rewire News, the one and only Jessica Mason Piclo. Thank you so much, Liz. And thank you for everyone at Abortion Access Front and Operation Save Abortion for putting this on. I can't second enough what you've said about the largely failure of the media to really talk about this case, its implications, and um, the politics behind it. So I am really excited to dig in. I'm going to introduce this amazing group of panelists that you folks have put together and ask everybody to share just a little bit about their work before we really dive in. I'm going to start with you, Arpita. Arpita Anapagari is the Associate Director of Policy and Partnerships for the National Institutes of Reproductive Health. Wow, is this an honor to have you here with us. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks, everyone. Hi, I am Arpita Panagari. My pronouns are she and her. And at the National Institute for Reproductive Health, I work closely with partners around the country to advocate for and pass proactive policies related to abortion and the broader sphere of reproductive justice. Thank you so much. Um, and Caitlin Gertz, let's go to you. Um, you are PhD, MHS, and VP for Research at IBIS Reproductive Health. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much, Jessica. Hi, my name is Caitlin Gertz. My pronouns are she, her. I'm an an epidemiologist by training. And at IBIS Reproductive Health, our mission is to drive change through bold, rigorous research and principled partnerships that advance sexual and reproductive autonomy and choices worldwide. My own research focuses primarily on self-managed abortion and access to abortion in restricted legal settings. Oh, thank you so much. You are going to add so much to this conversation. And Elisa Wells, co-founder and co-director of Plan C Pills. Thank you so much for lending your expertise as well. Well, thanks for this opportunity. I'm Elisa Wells. I use she, her pronouns. And Plan C is an information campaign for abortion pill access in the United States. And we research routes of access to pills by mail and share that information about how to obtain abortion pills in all 50 states, even in states with restrictions. Thank you so much for for joining us today. And last but not least, we have Natasha Chabria, the campaign director from All Above All. Natasha, thank you so much for joining us. 
Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Natasha Chabria, she, her. Um, I work at All Above All, which is a catalyst for abortion justice. We're a network of over 150 partners um, across a variety of movement sectors. And we really focus on using multi-pronged strategies um, to work towards a world in which abortion is accessible, available, affordable, and supported for anyone who needs it. As I said, this is a supercharged panel full of um, folks who really know the ins and outs of medication abortion, both in the clinical and in the self-managed setting. So let's really get into it. Before we dive into the lawsuit and what is bringing us all together here, Caitlin, can you sort of do a level set for everyone and tell folks about the two most commonly used medication abortion protocols and the evidence on their safety and effectiveness, both in clinician managed and self-managed spaces? This is important because, you know, the lawsuit is targeting supposedly the safety and efficacy of the medication protocol. Exactly. Thanks so much, Jessica. So I'm going to start by grounding us in what we know and what the data say. So the World Health Organization um, recommends two regimens for safe and effective medication abortion care. The first is mesoprostol alone, and the second is mifepristone in combination with mesoprostol. The WHO recommends these regimens throughout pregnancy. And just for shorthand, you see it on the screen. I'll refer to these medications as MIFI and MISO throughout my remarks. Um, So in the U.S., the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and basically every other clinical group that you know also recommends both MIFI and MISO and MISO alone. I want to be really clear about one thing. In the U.S., the FDA has only approved the combined regimen, MIFI and MISO, and only through 10 weeks gestation. However, as the WHO recommendations demonstrate and as evidence from around the globe has shown, both regimens can be safely and effectively used throughout pregnancy. So I'll now go to what you see on your screen. The current WHO recommended protocol for meso-alone medication abortion through 12 weeks gestation are to take 800 micrograms of meso, which is usually four pills, and to take that either buccally, so in your cheek, sublingually under your tongue, or inserted into your vagina, repeated every three hours for three doses with repeat doses of misoprostol when needed to complete the abortion. For mifepristone, in combination with misoprostol, the WHO recommended regimen is to take 200 milligrams orally, so swallow it, followed 24 to 48 hours later by one dose of the same 800 micrograms of misoprostol, again, in your cheek, under your tongue, or inserted into your vagina. So there are side effects of medication abortion for both regimens, including nausea, diarrhea, chills, low-grade fever, cramping, and bleeding. I want to say that inserting meso into your vagina has been shown to reduce some of the gastrointestinal side effects. But one thing that's really, really important for people to know is that the remnants of those pills can remain in the vagina for a number of days after they've been inserted. So if someone having an abortion is concerned about someone else discovering that they might have used the pills, the vaginal route might not be the right choice for them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so a couple more things to say quickly about safety and effectiveness. The combined regimen has for more than 20 years been the gold standard of medication abortion care in the United States, and it now accounts for more than 50% of clinician-managed abortions in the U.S. 
decades of research from the U.S. and around the globe have also shown that both regimens, MIFI and MISO and MISO alone, are overwhelmingly safe and effective. Our best available evidence tells us that the current FDA-approved regimen of misoprostone in combination with misoprostol is about 95% effective. That's up to 10 weeks gestation. And despite what you have heard probably about mesoprostol alone being less effective than the combined regimen, that information is really based on old data from some outdated regimens. So I want to say the best data that we have on the current recommended protocol for mesoprostol alone medication abortion tells us that it is approximately 93% effective. I want to say also that recent data from studies of feminist networks around the globe who support people to safely self-manage their own abortions with these medications has demonstrated that self-managed medication abortion, by which I mean when somebody uses pills to end a pregnancy without the involvement of a clinician, using both regimens, MISO alone and MISO, is no less effective than a medication abortion when a clinician is involved. So I'll just wrap up to say that misoprostone and misoprostol are safe. They are effective. Everybody should be able to access safe, affordable abortion care and choose whatever method is best for them. Make no mistake that this latest attack on misoprostone is part of a larger political agenda to ban abortion nationwide and take away essential health care from our communities. Thank you for such a comprehensive and yet brief overview of medication abortion, truly. Um, I think particularly as this lawsuit has worked its way uh, in the media, we hear about attacks on the abortion pill. And so, for example, for folks to understand that it is a multi-pill regimen is really important. So thank you for that. Um, Elisa, can you tell us a bit more about the supply networks for abortion access and resources so that folks have that information before we dive into the weeds of this lawsuit and, and the risks to it? Sure. Um, it's very important to know how you can get these pills in the United States. And really, access depends a lot on where you live. So in states that still allow clinicians to provide abortion care, you can get pills through clinics like Planned Parenthood or independent abortion clinics, sometimes through primary care providers, although that's less common. Um, and you do an in-person consultation and get a prescription, and then you're given the pills to take home and you actually take them at home. A lot of people don't understand that about abortion pills. We also have amazing telehealth options now. This is a development that happened during the pandemic. And a lot of people still don't know that you can do an online consultation, sometimes with a video and sometimes just an online secure form that you fill out and text back and forth with a provider. The pills are mailed in about one to five days directly to your home. And again, just like with clinics, you take the pills at home to safely self-manage or manage your abortion. Um, it's important to note that not all of states that allow abortion care also allow telehealth abortion. So there are some states where you would need to go into a clinic um, to get the pills. Now, we also know that there are a lot of um, states in our country that have laws that prevent clinics and clinicians from providing abortion care. But we know there's a robust alternative system for obtaining these medications. And that's part of what we research at Plan C. We know that there are tens of thousands or likely even more people who have been using these networks to access the pills in the United States. 
What we do at Plan C is we routinely test those sources of pills, we learn about them, and then we list what we consider to be reliable sources on our website, plancpills.org. So what are these sources? One of them is Aid Access, people may have heard about. It's a human rights-based organization that's uh, located in Europe. Uh, there's a doctor that um, reviews the medical information that people submit online, writes a prescription, and pills are shipped from India. There are also these amazing feminist community networks, community-based networks that are shipping pills for free um, throughout the restricted states. We list those on our website. And then there are what we call websites that sell pills um, that are basically commercial businesses that are set up to, um, to mail these medications directly to people. And the pricing is coming down on those. So some people would think those are not a bad option either. And we do again, test for reliability of these services. So you can see these, this vast alternative network of supply. And we'll talk a little bit later about how important that's gonna be um, if this ruling does come down. But we list everything on our guide at plancpills.org. And truly, for folks who are joining this webinar, Plan C is an amazing resource, and I can't recommend them enough if you have questions in terms of where to find access. All right, RPD, you get the question of the day or the hour for the webinar, and that is, what on earth is this lawsuit that we are here to talk about? What really, truly does the public need to know about FDA versus Alliance, or Alliance versus FDA, I should say? Sure. So... Throughout the whole time that I'm talking, I want folks to keep remembering what Dr. Gertz said about mifepristone having a 20 plus year track record in this country of safe use. It has been approved by the FDA for over 20 years. Just keep that in your mind as I talk to you about this lawsuit. So this lawsuit basically incorrectly argues that the FDA exceeded its authority when it approved mifepristone over 20 years ago. It claims this under the Comstock Act, which is incredibly antiquated, we're talking the 1800s, designed to deny access to contraceptive and abortion information and methodologies. So not only are they arguing against a 20 plus year precedence of safety, they're arguing that the FDA itself exceeded its authority and that it is instead beholden to a law from the 1800s. If you're shaking your head, if you're rolling your eyes, we're only just warming up, so stay with me. This case was deliberately filed in the Northern District of Texas, which is a single judge courthouse where cases are automatically assigned to Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, boo, an extreme right-wing activist judge with a long history of disturbing opinions. The Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine is an organization, and I use that term loosely, of anti-abortion quote unquote, medical groups. They incorporated specifically in the Northern District of Justice so that they could bring this specific lawsuit in front of this specific judge. This was planned. This was, you know, coordinated. This was strategic. Regardless of who the judge is, no judge should be able to step in and override the FDA's scientific judgment that a medical product is safe and effective. That is the FDA's literal job and the assertion that the FDA shouldn't have approved mifepristone in the first place is, you know, I can't decide if it's laughable or if it's deeply, deeply scary because it calls into question the entire existence of the FDA. The lawsuit is centrally focused on mifepristone, calling into question the existence of that specific medication of its approval. 
But it is important to note that the way that the plaintiffs have filed in this case could have broad reaching impact. So it could impact, yes, mifepristone, yes, misoprostol, but also any needed medication that has been approved by the FDA. So that's the lawsuit. In terms of impact, we are talking huge. You heard Elisa talk about all of the different ways in which we can access pills, and Dr. Gertz talked you through both how to self-manage your abortion or how you would experience a medication abortion in clinic. All that said, this lawsuit is purposefully cruel. It is purposefully confusing. The confusion and cruelty are the point. Banning mifepristone not only bans, you know, a very safe medication, not only calls into question the entire existence of the FDA, but also creates an environment within which abortion bans are, you know, suddenly a kind of liberal way to get an abortion, where we're talking about uh, something that is creating a pathway for a nationwide abortion ban. We are talking about something that will prevent access even further. Yes, a misoprostol-only regimen is safe, and yes, it will be used. And also, we're going to face extreme access problems, particularly for the communities who are most marginalized already, particularly Black folks, Indigenous folks, trans people, immigrants, and young people. So, you know, we're calling into question the legitimacy of a federal agency while also creating a pathway for a nationwide abortion ban. It's really like a one-two punch of the worst that they could bring at us. I really so appreciate you mentioning the fact that this lawsuit is really an attack on the FDA as an agency writ large, because as we have seen with the conservative legal movement, they frequently use attacks on abortion or attacks attacks on trans folks, for example, as the sort of tip of their spear for larger agenda items. And, and this lawsuit could not be a better example of that. Um, Natasha, is there anything you'd like to add to help people understand really the significance of this case? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, my fellow panelists really lined this up well by outlining all of the different implications of this case. I think I just want to emphasize, I know everyone has said this, but this is unprecedented. It's unprecedented in so many ways. It's unprecedented because we are challenging the authority of a designated agency who has the authority from Congress to engage in the approvals of drugs. Um, in approving a drug, it's not like the FDA just wakes up and says, hey, you know what, today we're going to put this drug on the market. They go through a rigorous scientifically backed process um, and continue to revisit that process to make sure that they're up to date um, in how they are administering their authority. Um, so in order to even get to the point where this medication was approved in the first place, the FDA conducted rigorous studies, rigorous scientific reviews. And in the 23 years since the medication has been approved, they've continued to do that. In fact, in January, um, they just finished up an additional review where they removed certain restrictions um, that were placed on mifepristone, showing that they believe that it is so safe and effective that we should increase access to it. So if this case were to move forward, if we were to get a negative decision from this judge, it would really roll back decades of, of progress and decades of safe, accessible access to mifepristone. Now, I really want to hone in here on the impact piece that Arpita sort of laid out. We know that 
any restrictions on abortion care, any bans on abortion care disproportionately fall on people of color, particularly black, indigenous, um, and other folks of color. They particularly fall on people of color working to make ends meet, people in rural communities, and people without access to nearby abortion providers. Now, add on all of this layer of confusion and chaos, and we're just exacerbating existing barriers to access for folks who just are looking for the care that's the best for their circumstances. Now, we're in a sort of holding pattern, right, where we're waiting for a decision to come out. Um, so we don't know the exact implications. But even in this moment where we're waiting for something, um, as Urban said, it's causing a lot of confusion and chaos. That means that people don't know what kind of care they can get. They don't know where they can get the care that they need. Um, and they don't know if they're going to be criminalized for just accessing basic health care. Um, and that's a major problem for communities that are already over-policed. So there's so many different layers of implications here. Um, and when it comes down to it, it's really just part of a long arc of attack on our bodily autonomy and our ability to make decisions about ourselves, our bodies, um, and our health care in a way that is sustainable. And we're really just embarking upon a really, really complex, chaotic, um, and frankly, cruel attack on our basic, fundamental human rights. I think that chaos point is so important because as we wait for the decision, the chaos, as you folks have said, along with the cruelty, is part of the point because it chills the ability of folks to exercise the rights that they still have. And that is a very intentional strategy. I'm curious if there's a ton of expertise on this panel. Has, has In your experiences, in your careers, have you ever witnessed a similar attack on access to medication abortion like we are seeing in this lawsuit? Or is this really truly after Dobbs? Are we really absolutely in a new era now? Just open it up to the panelists. I would say we're in a new era in that the usual attacks on medication abortion that we've seen are attacking telehealth, attacking, you know, gestational age limits, attacking the the procedure of abortion itself, attacking the medication and the safe calling into question a 20-year precedent of safety of the medications, calling into question a federal agency about medication. That's brand new. You can see it on the slides in front of you. A federal judge has never imposed a ban on a particular drug by completely revoking FDA approval. That is one of the potential outcomes. And that is truly, again, it's the cruelty is the point. The confusion is the point. The strategic breakdown of every piece of abortion care from soup to nuts. That's the point. Wow. Breakdown from soup to nuts. That's that's really something. Anybody else want to sort of add their perspective or a layer to that? I think the only thing I would add is that this is, like we've been saying, this is part of a long arc of attack on not only abortion rights, but kind of reproductive justice writ large. Um, it doesn't just happen overnight where we wake up in this situation. It's a concentrated effort. And now we're sort of seeing the fruits of those efforts. Um, and we're in this fight for the long haul. Um, I think one thing that's really important to note is part of what feeds into all of this chaos and confusion um, is this stigma and shame that really underlies a lot of the arguments that the anti-abortion extremists are making in this case. And if we're not really careful about how we disseminate information to folks, um, I think it was really amazing the way um, my co-panelist laid out the efficacy and the safety of multiple different types of medication abortion. We know when it comes down to it, right? We as communities 
save ourselves. We save each other. Institutions are there to provide certain guardrails, but at the end of the day, we're going to care for each other by working towards a world in which abortion is accessible for everyone. This is a fight that we have in front of us right now, but it doesn't mean it ends whenever we get this decision. And that is such an important and powerful point. And one I think we'll come back to um, again and again, um, not just in this panel, but as we, um, uh, as advocates and communicators figure out what exactly this judge has done and its implications. So let's talk about this this potential decision because when this panel was organized and put together, there was the possibility that we would already have a ruling. You know, the judge has the opportunity to rule functionally at any point um, now. The the issue has been briefed. And so there are a couple different pathways that could happen. You know, one pathway is that the advocates bringing this lawsuit could lose. It's not a likely pathway, I think, given the way that they have um, chosen the venue, the way that they have basically cooked up, as my as the panelists have said, a political attack on medication abortion access where other avenues have been unsuccessful. But I do think it's important to recognize that that is one potential outcome. We should not preemptively close out potential wins on our side like that. But do I think that's likely? I think that that is an I think that that is a unlikely outcome in this case, but I won't foreclose it entirely. Um, there's another outcome where the folks bringing this lawsuit get part or most of what they want, and that is that they have attacked medication abortion access writ large and the FDA, yes, but in that have also challenged certain um, aspects of approval and expansion. Um, as Elisa has mentioned, for example, that happened as a result of the COVID pandemic. So we could see perhaps a more moderated ruling, something that rolls back some of those expansions, but does not completely remove Mifepristone approval and threaten its accessibility on the market at all. And then there is a the really bad ruling, which I think folks are, are waiting for, and one that would buy and accept completely the, uh, the arguments that advocates are making here, which is that the FDA exceeded its authority in, in uh, putting this uh, medication on the market. And as a result, um, if a pristone should be removed and also threaten the entire medication abortion protocol, as was described. And that is a true existential threat to the right to an abortion where it still exists in this country. I just want to say that and to, to access generally. However, I do think that there are some openings there that I think it is important and responsible to talk about. Um, on Friday, for example, a coalition of uh, Democratic attorneys general filed a counter lawsuit against the FDA, arguing that the restrictions that they have on mifepristone are actually too severe, that those should be lifted and access should be broadened. Um, and they are looking for a quick ruling in that. So we have functionally a battle of lawsuits around the FDA and mifepristone that is starting to uh, percolate. There's also the reality that the FDA has the sole authority to approve and remove medications from the market. And some other legal scholars in this litigation have filed briefing around that says functionally the FDA and FDA only has the authority to oversee the withdrawal of a drug from the market. And so the FDA could say, thank you for this ruling that says we need to do this, but actually we don't have to abide by that. That's a political position that the Biden administration could take. 
I would love to see the Biden administration take that position. Let me be very clear. They are well within their rights to do so. There are lots of medications on the market that are with that have fallen either outside of FDA approval or are not yet there. And the FDA just does not really enforce that. They have a selective enforcement uh, opportunity there as well. So I say that not to downplay the threat because I, the threat is real. But there are alternatives in the event of a bad ruling, um, whether it is alternatives in the legal world or, as we've discussed briefly on this panel so far, just alternatives in accessing medication, no matter abortion, no matter what the court says. So I personally, and I'm sure you folks as well, would love to hear from each of the panelists as what you see the implications of a couple of these outcomes and pathways that I have laid out for in this in this litigation. What does it mean for folks across the country? Um, what are we really looking at? And what will this do ultimately to medication abortion access in this country? Just a small question to open up to the panel. I mean, I just want to lift up what my co-panelists have said, which is that any restriction on abortion and all restrictions on abortion have historically been leveraged to control and criminalize communities of color and and transgender communities, immigrant communities, young people, folks who are struggling to make ends meet. So the impact of this case, just like any other abortion restriction that is passed, will be felt most acutely in those communities. And the risk of criminalization will be felt most acutely in those communities. And it will further restrict access to just a fundamental piece of healthcare. I also think it's important to call out the burden that this will place on abortion funds and practical support organizations and members of communities who are supporting the people who need this access most and who are directly targeted by so many of the other surrounding laws in banned states that, that target the people who are supporting abortion seekers, intending intentionally to isolate the person seeking them. Very well said. Anyone else want to jump in? Yeah, just to add to what Caitlin said, um, I want to say that this ruling is not going to affect these alternative supply routes, right? So we will still have access to those. Um, they're not perfect. They do come potentially with this risk of criminalization. And we've heard that the risk of criminalization falls heaviest on uh, populations, people of color and others that are not well served by our systems already. Um, the other thing I wanted to lift up is that um, we can learn a lot from other countries that have been in this situation for a long time, um, especially from the networks of you know, the feminist networks who have been sharing information, helping each other, uh, community-based support for one another. We know from living in our country that we can't rely on our systems of that are supposed to be providing us with healthcare service, um, and and especially if you are an, in you know part of an underserved community, you cannot rely on it. We can't rely on our criminal justice system to make the right decision, and we certainly can't rely on these judges to to make the right decision. It's it's like they're playing a game, and it is the people who need abortion care who are the pawns in this. It, it, we should not have the situation going on at all. So there is a certain amount of power in the safety of these pills and their effectiveness and their ability to be used by people themselves to safely 
self-manage their abortion. And we see this around the world and I think can learn a lot from other countries that are helping each other. And that's what we're starting to do more in the United States now with self-managed abortion. Thank you. Arpita or Natasha, did you want to jump in? Um, Our other panelists have said really beautifully the expectations for the impact of a bad decision or the worst decision. But I'll add that community systems have been a real saving grace post-Dobbs. Community systems of care, community systems of access and community points of recognition when we when it comes to recognizing when someone needs life-saving care like abortion care and the burden that will be felt by community systems of care if the bad or worst decision comes down is enormous it will be globe shifting right because we know that the legality of access or in this case the FDA approvals of a medication that doesn't ensure access to people, right? Communities ensure that access, community movements ensure that access. And we keep saying the fear is the point. And what we mean by that is that the chaos after this decision comes down creates an immediate chilling effect amongst community networks of care because they are afraid of criminalization. They are afraid of breaking the law. They are afraid of whatever consequences may come out of a decision like this. And I want to be clear that the consequences themselves won't be clear when Judge Kaczmarek gives us a decision. We don't have any clear guidance once that decision comes down. All we have is his words on paper. That doesn't do anything for us. I want to be really clear that community efforts have really gotten us to a point where we are finding care for one another, including in states where abortion is completely inaccessible. If you have ways of supporting your community networks, you should do that now. You should do it with money. You should do it with time. Community care is going to be so, so important when this decision comes down in no small part because we don't know what it will mean practically. I could not agree with everything you said more. Um, Natasha, a last word on this or are we good, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think I 100 million percent echo everything my co-panelists have said. And the last thing I'll just add is even if by some miracle we get the best case scenario here, it's still really important to remember that this is going back to some of our earlier points. This is part of a long arc of attacks on access to abortion care, access to fundamental reproductive bodily autonomy and reproductive freedom. So we need to be vigilant and it's critically important, like Arpita said, if there are ways for you to contribute at the community level, um, at the local level, at the state level, whatever ways you can get involved and you haven't already been, this is a moment to activate. Um, We're in this for the long haul. There's going to be lots of different points for folks to activate in ways that are best for you. So please get involved with your local organizations, follow us on social media, keep an eye on what's going on so we can plug you in. Um, It's really an all hands on deck moment and we need every single one of you to join us. I so appreciate that because it's such an excellent pivot to the next question that I wanted to tee up for the panelists, which is now that we've gone through all of the parts about this that is really bad, all of this that sucks. And this is something that on the Boom Lawyer podcast is really important to Amani and I. We don't want to leave folks feeling def- defeated and deflated because now is not the moment for that. So what can folks do? What are the ways that people can take action, both for the fight for abortion access and to help those in their own lives who need abortion access? How can they find agency and take action in this moment? So lots of different ways, right? So at a basic human level, what you can do is if you have a loved one who is seeking abortion care, 
you can be their support. You can help them find information. You can drive them to where they need to go. You can provide them with food. You can hug them. You can provide them with like a warm beverage. All the things that make you show your love to someone, like that is a wonderful place to start. Someone mentioned money, donate to abortion funds, donate to your local organizations that are providing that practical support, that are providing that physical care in these moments of chaos. Share resources. So if you're finding really good resources from the folks on this panel, from other folks around, about hotlines, information, make sure you verify it, but share it with folks who may not have access to that same information. And then when it comes to advocacy, there's lots of great ways to get involved with your local organizations. But if you're looking to participate in sort of national efforts, All Above All is partnering with the Emma Project, who focuses on removing um, restrictions on mifepristone as well as ultraviolet to issue a national petition for individual signers to essentially show our support for the Biden administration in this moment. There are, as have been noted on this call, many different mechanisms they can use to fill gaps created by a potential negative decision. And we want to show them that we're here, we're paying attention, and this is really, really, really important for our communities. If you are an organization looking to get involved and you're not already part of All Bavall's network, please feel free to email me, look us up on our website. If you're part of our network, we can get you plugged into some national and state advocacy efforts as well. It was me mentioned money before, and I'm going to mention it again. I'm going to triple down on what Natasha said. Donate to your local abortion fund. Donate to your local practical support fund. Donate your time. Donate your energy. Donate your money. That is huge. And I'll add that there is a lot of speculation around all things abortion access right now. This case in particular, be a force against hysteria, be a force against misinformation you came to this today. You took time out of your lives to be with us today. We so appreciate that. Take it and pay it forward. Take the correct information to folks. Make sure that if you are seeing information online that is saying, you know, you won't be able to access abortion after this ruling or something that is really hysteria inducing, take a beat. <laughs> Tell them to take a beat. Tell them to drink some water. You know, take a walk around the block. Look at a nice dog. Everything is going to be okay, because we can't freak out now. And you are a force for that. You are a force to create better information in this world because you took time to attend this today. And I'll just, I'll add, being a part of a national organization myself, working with state and local organizations, I can tell you with certainty that the power is built at the most minuscule of levels. It is built in your neighborhoods. It is built in your churches, in your temples. It is built at your city councils. So if there are folks in your network who are really activated about this, y'all can make the difference for your communities. And those small communities are what's making the difference across the country. We saw it, incredible amount of local work post-Dobbs. And I'm, you know, if the goal of this is not to end on a sad note, I am telling you, look at your local areas to see what you can do because truly local work is so innovative and so exciting right now. I want to add to what Arpita said earlier that I think we're going to expect a lot of chaos when this ruling comes down. And so I appreciate your saying now, remain calm. I, I really love that. Um, but one of the things we know is people are going to be looking for ways to get abortion care um, in, in all states. And we hope that people on this call will learn about these resources and share them out 
so that people can identify ways they can get care if it's being cut off. We hope you'll come to plancpills.org and look to see what's there. We hope you'll share information about other support resources that are out there. Two that are really great are the Miscarriage and Abortion Hotline, which is a free service where people who are self-managing their abortions can text with a provider, a volunteer provider, and help understand the symptoms that they're experiencing or what they need to do next. Um, so that's a free medical resource for people. And also the Repro Legal Helpline, which is a service that can help people understand what is the risk of buying uh, pills off the internet and using them. Um, where they are. It personalizes that information that enables people to make their own decision based on their own risk tolerance. Um, so that's a really good organization um, helpline to direct people to. And just to speak out about the injustice that's being done about abortion access in general, and also with respect to the criminalization of pregnant people for managing their own health care, which in you know an, a democracy, we shouldn't have to be even having this conversation. We need to be speaking out against it. It's outrageous what's happening right now. Thank you so much for that last point um, in particular, because truly the attacks on our bodies are absolutely an attacks on um, a democracy. They go hand in hand. And I think that that's something that we don't say enough. Caitlin, anything um, that you'd like to add to this conversation, to this part of the conversation? Yeah, just lots of thousand to what my co-panelists have said. Absolutely. And I think in terms of sharing information, you know, normalize abortion, say the word abortion, talk about it, destigmatize, and also share some of the good, uh, reliable information and resources that you have. I want to point everyone to another resource, the Yuki app. It is a comprehensive sexual and reproductive health information app that does not collect any back-end data. So if people are concerned about their digital footprint, this is a resource that has information about abortion and links to literally all of the organizations that we have talked to or talked about today. Um, and it's a way of both if somebody needs information about abortion or if somebody needs to share information with somebody that they know um, who needs an abortion, that is a safe and secure way to do that. Um, and also just one thing to add is Listen to and lift up the voices of and experiences of people who have had abortion in your community and broadly. So an organization like We Testify, go and check out their website, read the stories, learn from the storytellers, the people who have had abortions themselves who can help, again, to normalize and destigmatize and understand what this experience is like. Thank you so much, particularly for the point on stigma. Uh, I really, truly believe one of the reasons why this lawsuit is even possible is because of abortion stigma. The only way that you can make an argument 20 years after the fact and have it not immediately laughed out of both the court of public opinion and the court of uh, law is the fact that abortion stigma is so deeply entrenched um, in our communities and the law. So um Thank you for all of this. That This has been a super robust conversation and we are coming up on time and not surprisingly have a lot of questions in the in the queue. So I'm gonna try and get to as many as I can. I think that I the likelihood that I get to them all is probably pretty slim just given the topic and everybody's enthusiasm, but let me start and see what we can get through. Do we expect shortages in the availability of the medications if the ban does go through? If, for example, if MIFI is banned, is there enough 
um, misoprostol to go around, especially since that protocol takes uh, takes longer. And I think this is interesting because I know that there has been some other conversations about whether folks should have pills on hand ahead of time in terms of advanced provision, what that looks like. And so I think this question really gets to what can we do not only while we're waiting, but what happens afterwards. So um, I'm not sure who wants to take a stab at that. Probably a combo. I could try. <laughs> um, yeah, and we do we do talk about advanced provision at Plan C. We encourage people to be prepared in the same way that we did with emergency contraception way back when. Is you know why not have it on hand in case you need it? Uh, you can take it early on in pregnancy, especially if you live in a state that has like a six week ban. When you discover that you're pregnant, if you have something on hand, you can take. You would be within that six weeks and and operating you know according to the the law. Um, in terms of product supply, we did during COVID see um, challenges with misoprostol uh, uh, supply. I know a lot of the, the clinicians that we work with were, were finding themselves calling around to figure out where they could get it. I think that was more of a supply issue created by um, the pandemic, though. So I, I would not expect to see that. We have had reassurances that there is plenty of misoprostol out there. And then again, for these alternate networks, they are relying on generic pills from, um, from India primarily. And we know that the, the manufacturer of those products is you know, in the, the millions per year and the, the demand in the United States uh, for medication abortion is closer to 500,000. So I think we wouldn't be concerned about that. Well, that's, that's good. That's reassuring to hear at least. Um, Arpita, I think this is a good question for you because I've seen it um, uh, uh, come across a couple uh, places as well. If the worst case scenario does come uh, to pass, is there an executive order option to restore access or some pathway uh, that the Biden administration could do via executive uh, order or action to either mitigate or um, reverse whatever decision we get out of Amarillo? So that's a great question. And I'll say that because this is a lawsuit basically calling into question a federal agency, the Biden administration can absolutely take action. They cannot reverse necessarily what comes out of the court because that would be specifically within the FDA's jurisdiction and they would it would be up to the FDA to respond. And part of the chaos that we're talking about is we don't know how the FDA will respond because they are responding to the, you know, the their existence in total. It is a crazy thing to ask them to respond to. What the Biden administration can do is come out in strong support of the safety of medication abortion and the safety of mifepristone. They can put out a strongly worded statement or an executive order saying that mifepristone is safe. Mifepristone should be able to be accessible, should be able to be accessed at your pharmacies as it is now, and they can come out in strong support. That said, unfortunately, because we have never faced anything like this before, because this is unprecedented, we don't really know what standing the Biden administration will have. The hope is that they will come out in strong support of mifepristone and strong support of all needed medications, because again, this will affect all needed medication. But as someone who myself had a medication abortion at 19 in Indiana, I would love to see the president of the United States come out and tell me that what I did was safe. Absolutely. It shouldn't even be that difficult. So a couple of follow-up questions, um, I think, along that. You, you know, RPD, you had mentioned the Comstock Act as a basis of 
the plaintiff's claims here. And so there are sort of two back-to-back questions. I'm wondering if we can kind of take them at once. Doesn't the Comstock law practically prevent the U.S. mail from transporting Mithium Miso? And along those lines, if the judge does rule on Comstock grounds, could misoprostol be affected as well? It's a great question. So first, the Comstock Act is from 1873. It made it illegal to send, quote, obscene, lewd, or lascivious, immoral, or indecent publications through the mail. So the reach here is that abortion medication, information about abortion care, all of that is lewd, lascivious, adult information only. It's a bunch of doohickey. It's nonsense. It's nonsensical. Um, I am from the Midwest. I'm allowed to say that. (laughs) So you know, could it affect misoprostol? I think the answer is no, only because the FDA's approval of misoprostol has nothing to do with abortion. It is not, it's an off-label use. So, you know, they can't really attack the FDA for an off-label use. It's a small comfort. That is a small comfort. Um, And thank you. The Comstock Act uh, claims truly are nonsense. My Midwestern heart um, exploded in joy when (laughs) When you were describing that, um, have there been other countries that have been in the situation that the United States finds itself in now, where we, where they had had rights that were once recognized, previously unrecognized by the court or taken away? And, you know, how, if so, are there additional lessons that we can learn? And if not, maybe what is the distinguishing fact for the United States in navigating through there? Yeah, and I'm not enough of a historian to come up with um, an example where that has happened. I mean, what we see around the world is all sorts of countries that are liberalizing abortion. And so it's this is, you know, the opposite, as the, as the questioner is pointing out. Um, does anybody else can think of a country in which this is the case? I mean, I think the example of Romania... Um is one that, you know, I think sort of falls into the category of overthrown government. But I think, Lisa, to your point, really thinking about both the lessons that we have to learn from our activists and advocate colleagues around the globe who have been navigating restrictive abortion laws, you know, far more restrictive than ours for far longer, you know, really helps us to put our situation in context. I mean, I think Americans tend to think that we are unique. And in this respect, we are very much not unique. And so I think to to some of what Elisa was talking about earlier, the ways in which feminist networks and advocates and activists around the globe have really come together when their governments have abdicated responsibility for providing basic health care to support each other, build this kind of community care and community support is um, certainly something that exists here. And um, and I certainly hope that we have the opportunity uh, to make some new, deeper connections across those kinds of community care networks. Thank you for that. Yeah, there's, uh, I'm, I'm struggling to find an example um, that comes to mind as well. I do think, you know, Romania is probably as close as we could get. And we are at time. I want to be mindful of that. We got an excellent question on the uh, Democratic Attorneys General's lawsuit that I mentioned. Let me just say very briefly that this was uh, filed in Washington uh, with a coalition of attorneys general um, and arguing that the FDA needs to move on medication abortion, that it has sat on its hands functionally and 
The evidence um, is clear that the restrictions that are in place are no longer necessary. They've asked for a quick uh, injunction um, in that case. And so we're waiting. Literally, the lawsuit was filed on Friday and we are here Monday. Um, and so what I would tell you is also to stay tuned to the Boom Lawyer podcast, because this is absolutely one of the lawsuits that we're digging into while we're waiting for this ruling and its implications. So Amani and I will have a lot more to say on that. But what it really does um, just very quickly is it puts at the center of this fight right now, um, the federal government and it's in um, the FDA as an agency in terms of the Biden administration's ability to um, provide some relief here. And I think that that's a very important point. I want to give our uh, panelists an opportunity for one last word before we close things up. I just want to say, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention and please spread the word. We do and will still have access. And we hope that the more that people rise up and take control of this themselves, the faster we'll get to a point, which is our vision of over-the-counter access. Might then sound strange to say in talking about all these restrictions, but you know, around the world, people can buy these pills off of pharmacy shelves. And so we want to get there too for over-the-counter access in the U.S. Thank you. Caitlin, what about you? Just to say again, try your best to talk about abortion wherever you go. Share the evidence-based information and um, and normalize as much as you can and, and take care of those in your community too, who need access. Thank you so much. Natasha? Yeah, thanks everyone for joining today. I mean, I've said it before, I'll say it again, I'll scream it from the rooftops. There likely will never be a time when our reproductive freedom, our bodily autonomy is not under attack. But that doesn't mean we don't work towards a world in which abortion justice is a reality, in which abortion is available, accessible, affordable, and supported for anyone who needs it. So no matter what's happening right now, yes, get outraged, make your voice heard. Use this as an opportunity to provide community support and plug in where you can. But remember, we're in this for the long haul, and we're going to be working towards a world in which all of these healthcare resources are available, and we're not going to stop fighting. So please join us. We need you. You are important to this fight. And I repeat it. Empathy is radical. Rest is radical. Community care is radical. We are here because we are searching for radical solutions. And sometimes the solution is as easy as empathy. It is as easy as community care. An attack on abortion rights anywhere is an attack on all of us everywhere. So thank you guys so much for showing up today and we'll see you around. Truly, thank you to uh, my brilliant and esteemed panelists who have provided such clear and important information at such a crucial time. I know that it can be difficult to wade through sometimes the medical and legal morass that is um, the attacks on abortion rights and access, but y'all did it brilliantly and um, effortlessly in, in at least from where I'm standing. And I really want to thank Liz and the entire team at Abortion Access Front and Operation Save Abortion for putting this panel together. This is a crucial public service. Folks need to understand what is happening. And there is just not enough information out there. I would also urge you, if you don't do so, to follow Rewire News Group on your social media platforms and subscribe to the Boom Lawyered podcast. Amani and I are dedicated um, to this issue exclusively, and um, we try to do it with a little bit of uh, humor as the folks here at, at Abortion Access Front do as well. So if folks have follow-up questions, Please um, let us know. And thank you all for your time, your curiosity, 
your radical empathy in making things a much better place for folks. This has been an honor and a pleasure to be in community with you today. Thank you. That was an amazing panel. If you want to get more involved, you can sign up at Operation Save Abortion, where you can really get active and we will give you the tools that you need to help us fight this ruling and so many other things. Also, for more incredible panels like this, OpSave is going to be servicing you. So make sure you sign up for our mailing list so that you can find out about all of these dope panels and actions that we got going. So looking for some action right now? Keep learning about all the ways you can educate those in your life about medication abortion. Go to plantcpills.org to check out all the options on their take action page, like putting up stickers everywhere in your town and joining the volunteer discord. And we are back to our regularly scheduled podcast next week. And it's also National Abortion Provider Appreciation Week. So we'll be joined by badass abortion provider, Dr. Moyetti, who works tirelessly to provide abortion care across the country. We're also joined by the fantastic Chase O'Donnell to talk about her new comedy special and album, People Pleaser. And lastly, if you like what we do and you like this content, join our Patreon. You'll support great content and get cool FBK merch and experiences. All pledges support this pod and all of our activism at Operation Save Abortion and at Abortion Access Front. Pledge at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. That's it for this week. We'll see you next week. Take care, everybody. Thanks for joining. Feminist Buzzkills, the podcast from Abortion Access Front. When BS is popping, we pop off. New episodes drop Friday. If you want to support our podcast and all the work of Abortion Access Front, like, subscribe, and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. Everybody, it's Liz from Feminist Buzz Kills Live. We are doing a special episode today in the wake of waiting for this Texas ruling about whether or not abortion medication can be accessible. We decided to assemble a panel of really dope people to have a conversation about what the ruling means, what you can do about it, and what the ramifications are for medication abortion. So without further ado, I am going to turn it over to our amazing moderator for this panel. She is somebody who I absolutely adore. She is the co-host of Boom Lord. She is the senior vice president of the Rewire News Group. And if you don't read Rewire, please do, because they are keeping you informed on all of this stuff. So please welcome Jessica Mason-Peaklow. Thanks, Jess. 